Thank you for tuning into the City Church California podcast. We exist for anyone to believe in God, to become who God created them to be, and to build the church and our city. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so that you can be updated anytime we add new content. Now let's check out the latest message from our Sunday gathering. your Bibles this morning, if you will turn to John chapter 6, verse 53. John chapter 6, verse 53. We're going to camp it out in one scripture today. And this is Jesus speaking. And this is what he says. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, I realize that right off the bat, I have probably, somebody stumbled in here and they're like, no, what did I just get myself into? And let me assure you, you're not the only one. This is the verse that most of us want to speed read through. We want to pretend that it's not there because frankly, it's a little, it's a little strange. It's a weird thing to say. Jesus is saying, eat my flesh and drink my blood or you have no life. But let me just tell you, we are not the only ones who fought that way. When Jesus says this in the time period that he says it, the Jewish people were highly, highly offended. They had very strict blood laws. They were not to eat anything that had blood in it. And so when he says this to his followers, they had to do one of two things. They had to either forget everything that they had ever learned and known and trust in Jesus and what he was saying and lean into his word, or they left. And the scripture actually tells us that droves of them leave his teachings. And I'm gonna encourage you today to not be in that latter half, that you would stay, that you would lean in, because I believe Jesus is giving us a key to life right here in this scripture. And if you were going to take one thing away from my message today, I hope that it would be this, that the blood of Jesus changes and changed everything. The blood of Jesus changed and changes continually to this day, everything. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time that we get to gather together. I ask that you would just go before us in this moment. God, give us eyes to see what you're doing, ears to hear, and hearts ready and willing to receive. We welcome you in this place in Jesus' name. And everybody said... Amen. So good morning. If you don't know me, like Pastor Jude said, I'm Keola. My husband and I are pastors here at City Church. He was the really handsome one up here playing the guitar this morning, Um, which is why we have four kids, because he's so cute. (laughs) Um, Maybe some parents can relate to me here. I don't know about you, but in my family, there are a lot of boo-boos. Anybody else? I have, I mean, we have a big family and it's mostly me. It's mostly happening to me, but there are a lot of injuries. And I remember one time in particular, my son Judah was six years old and he was practicing his ninja skills and he fell and he busted his lip wide open. And I remember him looking at me and he was holding his, his little chin like this as the blood was pouring into his little hands and his big brown eyes looked up at me and he just said, Oh my God, mama, I'm dying, I'm dying, aren't I? Because there was so much blood. And I remember my heart just exploding, thinking I will do anything to take this fear away from this child right now. And so I said to him, you are not dying. The blood is the proof of the life in you. And when we see blood, we don't see death, we see life. And my little six-year-old boy started to repeat these words. The blood is life, the blood is life, the blood is life. And he began to calm down so that we could tend to the issue. And from that moment on in my house, this is how we've referred to blood. The blood is life. If you ask my kids, they'll tell you the blood means they are alive. It has become very, very important for Steve and I to teach our kids the power of the blood that runs through their veins. And not just the power of the blood that runs through their veins, the power of the blood of Jesus that covers them. And when they understand how their blood functions, they can better understand how Jesus's blood functions. And you see, most of us know that Jesus is dying on the cross, paid for our sins, right? 
But that's pretty much the extent of what we know about the blood of Jesus, which is a little crazy to me because as Christians, we have become obsessed with this idea of blood. We sang several songs about it this morning. I'll prove it to you. How many of you in this room have either said or been told one of these phrases? We are freed by the blood. We overcome by the blood. I know you all have said that one. Um, Girl, you don't have to worry about that. That's under the blood. We have these really bold statements in our Christianese language that we use, and most of us don't question them because we know that the blood of Jesus is powerful. But I would, I would say to you today, it's important to know the why behind those statements. Why does this matter? Well, have you ever been sick? Has anybody ever felt distanced from the Lord? Like sometimes you're praying and your prayers are just hitting the ceiling and falling back on top of you. Have you ever uh, lacked peace? Have you ever sinned? If your answer to any of those questions is yes, then the power in the blood of Jesus is extremely vital for you to understand. Remember, the blood of Jesus changed and changes everything for us. And a few years ago, as I began to really dive into this topic and really begin to study it, I came across an article in Christianity Today by Paul Brand and Philip Yancey, and it wrecked me. I mean, it changed my life. And the author who writes this article is a surgeon who knows a thing or two about blood and how it works. And this article gave me a really good picture of how blood could change everything for a person in one instant. And he tells the story, Dr. Brand gives his testimony, and he tells the story of how his family was attacked with the measles. And at the time that they were attacked with the measles, they had an infant baby girl who is wildly susceptible to this disease. And so they take her to the pediatrician and the pediatrician explains that they have a need for a convalescent serum. And so they begin to start to look for somebody and the word goes around town that the brands need the blood of an overcomer. You see, they had needed blood from somebody who had already contracted measles and defeated that particular disease because blood from that person would save their baby girl. And they do end up finding somebody, they located somebody and they withdraw the blood from that person. They let those cells settle out and they inject the serum that was left over into their baby girl. And equipped with these borrowed antibodies, she was able to fight off this disease successfully. In his article, he says, she overcame measles, not by her own resistance or vitality, but as a result of a battle that had taken place and been won previously within someone else. It's powerful. He goes on in this article to say that there is a sense in which a person's blood as it prevails through many different obstacles and it deals with many outside outside invaders, that it becomes more valuable and more potent as the antibodies lock away the secret and the cure for each disease that they've taken on. That a person will, in a sense, get wise blood. And as I'm reading this, I begin to really contemplate this idea. Could this process then cast light on the description of Christ being made perfect through his suffering? and how he helps us, those who are suffering, because he himself also suffered. You see, from this article, we're able to get a little bit better of a grip of an understanding of the power of the wise blood of Jesus. And if you're a believer in this room this morning, then you are in covenant with the Lord. And in every God-given covenant, there are blessings bestowed and promises bestowed on those who put their faith and trust in, in him. And in our particular new covenant, salvation is the main promise that we get. It's the, it's the paramount one. It's the one that is like no other. If you believe and trust in Jesus, then you will be 
saved. But there are many, many other benefits and promises that come along with our new covenant from the blood of Jesus. And I wanna go through just a few of them here this morning. The first one that the Bible says is that the, that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from our sin. It cleanses us from our sin. You see, in previous covenants leading up to this, Animal sacrifices were what God required for payment and cleansing of the sins of humanity. And these sacrifices would continue for about 1,400 years. And some theologians believe that up to 1.2 million animals on certain days would be killed. I want you to just think about that just for a second. 1,400 years of animal sacrifices on certain days, 1.2 million, that's a lot of bloodshed. And yet one man comes in one time spills his blood one time, never to spill it again. And for the rest of forever, that is what God accepts as payment and cleansing of our sins. This should show us the magnitude and the power in the blood of Jesus, who he actually was. The Bible says that the blood of Jesus justifies us, that it justifies us. This is just a legal term, meaning that, meaning that you have been placed in right standing, legally deemed innocent before the Father. So when you stand before the Father on judgment day and you're covered by the blood of Jesus, he's gonna say, I see no sins, you may go. It says that the blood of Jesus redeems us. It redeems us. This means that his blood was powerful enough to buy every person back from the enemy's camp that it reconciles us so that we can have peace with God. This means we don't have to worry if God's up there like waiting to get back at us, if he's mad at us, if he's gonna rain down like harsh penalties. No, 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 no. You've been made a friend of God in a little tidbit of information. Anybody in scripture who was named a friend of God got a covenant by him. We, have been, we are friends with the Lord that we, his blood gives us access to be near to the throne of God. This is awesome. In the tabernacle or in the temple, the Lord wanted to be with his people so bad. He loved us so much and he wanted to be in the midst of his people, but he couldn't do that because we're unholy and he's holy. And he knew that if he were to show up, we would all die. So his love and his mercy places a curtain in the temple or in the tabernacle that separated his holy place from common people, keeping them safe, but also still managing to find a way to be with them. But Jesus's broken body on the cross rips that sheet, that curtain in the temple from top to bottom. And I've got news for somebody today. That didn't just happen in an earthly realm. That happened spiritually so that we can now boldly access the kingdom of God and walk boldly into his throne room and present our requests and our adoration and our love and all the things and be bold that we are covered and safe in that place. The Bible says that the, the blood of Jesus purges our conscience, purges our conscience. I love this one. And maybe you don't struggle with this. Maybe this is just me. But you see Christ's sacrifice, unlike the sacrifices in the Old Testament, these remove the paralyzing guilt that keep us from the throne of God. That's what this means. And maybe, maybe again, maybe you don't struggle with this, but there are times in my walk with the Lord where I'll be doing great and everything's fine. And then all of a sudden, I wanna hurl insults at myself. It's like all of a sudden, it's like, I know who you used to be. I remember that one time you did that. Remember, I remember how you used to treat people. And it's like, whoa, where did that come from? And it's my own conscience throwing this. But the Bible says that I can go, that is under the blood of Jesus and I can have peace within myself. I do not have to wreck myself with these thoughts any longer. I am a new creation in him. 
You see, we overcome through the blood of Jesus and his blood is that which moves us on towards perfection in our journey. And I'm telling you again, I believe wholeheartedly, every fiber in my being, that the blood of Jesus didn't just change everything, it continues to change everything. Now to get a better understanding of how Jesus's blood does this for us, we should look at blood in general. And I'm not gonna give you a full science lesson, although I really want to, because I'm a teacher, but, but blood has very three, three very specific cells. And each one of these cells have a very specific pur purpose. There's the red blood cell, the white blood cell, and the platelets. And when we look at these, what you need to know is that these blood cells, each one of them in their own purpose, do these things. They carry life to our bodies. You see, blood carries oxygen and nutrition to every other cell and organ in your body. It carries life to your body. It brings healing, it eradicates disease, and it's cleansing. It carries death away from our cells and out of our system. And I can tell that some of you this morning are starting to put some of these pieces together, that what our natural blood does for us, the blood of Jesus spiritually does for us. You see, sin is a life-threatening toxin that has come into the system and it produced pain and it caused death. And sometimes we get this spiritual toxin buildup. And what we need is a good transfusion of the blood of Jesus to wipe it out of our, of our systems. But in order for us to transfuse the blood, Jesus had to shed it. And so what I wanna do is I wanna walk through the five points of bloodshed that we see from the night before the crucifixion through the crucifixion because what I want you to see this morning is that at each one of these places, there is something to be taken for you and I. The first place that we see the bloodshed is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is one of Jesus's last great trials. It's where he's dealing with the, the sacrifice of his human will. And he's in the garden and he's praying to the Lord, God, if there is any other way for humanity to be saved, I want that option. I don't want to do this. And the Bible says that he is in so much agony about what he's about to walk through that he is sweating great drops of blood. And as he sweats these great drops of blood and as he's pleading with the Father for this cup to pass from him, he says these words, not my will, yours be done. It's important that we understand Jesus does not want to go to the cross. He has for sure seen a Roman crucifixion. He knows what he's about to endure. And yet he is here and he's pleading with the Lord. And he's in so much agony that literally the capillaries under his skin are busting, causing blood to come through his pores like sweat. And in that moment, he says, not my will, but yours be done. And we also have to recognize that he is still fully God in this moment. Jesus could have gone, you know what? I've spent the last 33 years with them. They're crazy. And some of them aren't even going to accept me. So I think, go ahead, send the angels. I'm gonna come back. We'll figure out a different way and we'll try again next time. But he doesn't, he could have. And he doesn't, he just says, you know what? No, if this is the way, not my will, but yours. And if you were to look back at the story of human history, what you would find is that it also began in a garden. And when the first Adam sins against God, that's when death enters into the world. And thousands of years later now, we see Jesus, who the Bible will actually refer to as the last Adam, enter into another garden. And the reason that they call him the last Adam is because Jesus is going to reverse and undo some of the things that Adam had placed on humanity. And so Jesus, the first Adam is in the garden. He says, I want that fruit. 
So not your will, Lord, mine be done. But we see Jesus kneel his, his knee and say, not my will, yours be done. And it is this moment of bloodshed that enables you and I to lay down our human will, even in the face of adversity, and pick up the will of the fathers. The second place that we see the blood is the morning after the garden when Jesus is scourged. So Jesus is praying in the garden and he's betrayed by one of his very own. And the Roman soldiers come and pick him up from that moment and they take him to Pilate, who's the Roman leader at the time. And he's standing before Pilate and Pilate firmly believes that Jesus is innocent. He does not wanna have him crucified. So to placate the crowd, he's gonna have Jesus scourged. What this means is that he's gonna have Jesus beaten. The Roman scourging is one of the most excruciating punishments anybody could ever go through. The Romans had their torture down. They knew exactly what they were doing. And what they would do is they would strip a person who was about to be scourged down naked. They would take their arms and they would place them around a boulder or a pillar like this, and they would force them to stretch their back so that the back would be really tight. Roman soldiers would then come behind the person that they were about to beat, and they would take a whip. And that, that whip would have two or three long leather straps. Woven into those straps would be glass, nails, bone, metal, all those things. The reason for this being that as they would come down and hit the back of the person, it would latch in and it would pull off all the muscle, tendons, skin, everything right down to the bone. And while this is very offensive to the mind, and it's hard to handle when you place it when it comes to Jesus, who's innocent and he doesn't deserve this, the Bible tells us that it is by this act that we are healed on this side of heaven. Isaiah 53 actually uh, predicted this and it says that he was whipped so we could be healed. This blood poured out in this moment is for our healing atonement, not just on that side of heaven, in the here and in the now. The third place... <clears throat> the third place that we see the bloodshed is in the crown of thorns. And this is... This is this is gonna be forced on Jesus's head and Jesus has just been beaten, he's been betrayed. Most likely he is no longer even recognizable. And the Roman soldiers are gonna begin to mock him. They're gonna make fun of him. And so they weave together a crown of thorns and they place that on his head. And this crown probably would look a little bit more like a hat like this. And those thorns would have touched every single place in the mind of Jesus. He would have felt them all over. You see this crown here, they thought they were being clever, the Roman soldiers. They're, they're, they're clever, right? That's funny. But God had another plan for this moment. This crown of thorns here it represents the byproduct of man's first sin from the Garden of Eden. These, these thorns speak of divine judgment. And again, Jesus is reversing and undoing something that Adam had done to humanity. He is reversing and undoing the crippling on our minds by our need for knowledge. And many people, as they were being executed in this way, they would begin to lapse into a state of insanity. Of course they would. The brain could not handle the trauma that the body was going through, so it would try to escape. But Jesus' prayers on the cross proved to us that he never one time loses his insanity. He never loses his faculties by the words that he says on the cross. And this crown here purchases the right for every single one of us to have a free mind and a sound mind in every part of the brain. 2 Timothy 1.7, this is a promise. I have not given you a spirit of fear. I have given you one of power and love and a sound mind. Jesus bears on his head. He is bearing on his mind the symbol of man's fallen thought patterns while conquering it at the same time. 
This blood is to free our minds. The enemy does not have control of your thought patterns. You don't have to think the way you've always thought because you've always thought it. You have been a new creation in Christ. The fourth place that we see the bloodshed is at the actual crucifixion. And this is the one that most people know about. This is where Jesus is nailed to the cross. So he's been betrayed, he's been beaten, he's been mocked, he's got this crown of thorns on and now he's gonna be nailed to the cross. And this moment is for our forgiveness. The Bible tells us that in this moment, all our transgressions have been nailed to the cross. That means that there is nothing that you or I could do outside of the sin of unbelief that he hasn't already paid atonement. This moment provides for you and I a heavenly home for the rest of forever. And the fifth place that we see the bloodshed is after he dies, when he was pierced in his side. So Jesus has now been hanging on the cross for several hours. He's gone through all the things and the Roman soldiers need to get the criminals down off the cross because of the time of day that we're getting to. So they would speed up the death process But when they get to Jesus, they think that he's already dead, but they cannot pull somebody off a cross who is not actually dead. So there's a way to prove it. They're going to take a spear and they're going to shove this spear up into the side in the rib cage of Jesus. And when they do, out flows blood and water and this confirms the death. Now, something to note here is that blood and water symbolically in scripture are, are, are the cleansing elements that we find. And that's what's happening here. And if you were to think back to Jesus's first miracle, you would find that Jesus turns water into wine, which is symbolic of blood. And it happens at a wedding where the bride is being prepared. Same thing is happening here. This moment of bloodshed is for his bride. It's for her church, his church. It's for her cleansing and her perfecting. And the same way that Adam's bride was born from his side is the same way now that Jesus's bride is being born from his side. You see this moment, This moment of bloodshed enables the church to go forth and do what she was called to do, to spread the good news that Jesus has not only died, but he is coming back. And he has now come back and he has a good thing for us, right? When we look at the overall bloodshed of Jesus, we should feel help in relinquishing our will and laying it down even in adversity. We should know that we have access to healing on this side of heaven. We should know that we have reversal on the curse of our minds. We don't have to think that way and that we have been forgiven of sin because we have, and we have access to the cleansing elements that perfect us as we continue on in our journey. We are not in a covenant or in a relationship with a God who is unable to sympathize with us. He is absolutely walked through and able to, and has walked through everything that we could encounter. When you look at the life of Jesus, it's, it's almost as if he went out of his way to expose himself to certain things. It's like he knew. It's like he knew we were gonna need the life-giving blood from him. And so he would place himself into certain, tempta- certain situations. It's like he was going, I am tired and I am frustrated and I am betrayed and I am broken and I have been beaten because one day they will be tired and they will be frustrated and they will be broken and they will be beaten and they will need my life-giving blood and they will be able to share in my spirit because I have overcome the world and they will be able to overcome the world. Jesus overcame everything up to and including death. And because he did it the right way, he has locked into himself the formula that we need to overcome as well. And when we take the life of Jesus in us, it is that life that fights through us and for us. 
This is how we overcome by the blood. And I'm going to ask the band to come up as I get ready to close. And this information is great. And, and you should, I hope that you, that you lock it away. But you need to know that there is a way to appropriate that blood into our lives. I want to take another look at this verse that we first read in John 6, 53. And again, Jesus speaking here, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and you drink his blood, you have no life in you. And what Jesus is speaking to or referring to in this moment is the covenant or communion meal. That's what he's referencing. And I want to make sure that we see exactly what he's doing because I believe he's giving us the secret on how to withdraw his blood and inject it into ourselves. He's showing us how we can be equipped with his borrowed antibodies so that we can fight off all of the tactics of the enemy as well. You see, we, like that little girl in the article, we overcome not by our own resistance or vitality, but as a result of a battle that has taken place and been won previously in Jesus. Now, historically speaking, we see this communion or this covenant meal take place the night before the crucifixion at the Last Supper. And Jesus is sitting with his disciples and he's teaching them one last time and he's enjoying their presence. And he says something, he says, as often as you do this, which means he expects them to take this meal, this communion covenant meal often. It's almost a command, as often as you do this, not once or twice at Easter and Christmas, do it often. And as often as you do this, drink my blood of the new covenant in remembrance of me. Now this is important. He says, do this in remembrance of me. And oftentimes we mistake this for just honoring the memory of Jesus, for just thinking about what he did or who he was. But this phrase in the Greek means way more than that. It's actually the fathers of our faith who understood exactly what Jesus was saying here is why they never missed an opportunity to take communion. Because this word here and this phrase means to perceive it again as if it were happening again. He commands them to do this often and perceive it like he is still there presiding over that moment. It's incredibly powerful. I think a better translation right here This is coming from the Keola translation. I hope it's not heresy, Pastor Jude, if it is, I'm sorry. Would be not remember what I did for you. Remember what I did and do for you. Who am I to you now? What do you need now? And then Jesus goes on after this moment of teaching with his disciples and he's gonna go to the cross and he's gonna die. And they're kind of left wondering, where do we go? They're scared, they're being persecuted, they're being chased after and they're in a, in a room and they're gathered around a table and all of a sudden Jesus appears to them in his post-resurrection body and the Bible says that some of them are afraid that it was a ghost. I mean, we would be too, right? What's happening? And he says, bring me some food. And he eats it in front of them and says, could a ghost do this? And from that moment on, they literally believed that every time they gathered together at a communion or a covenant meal, that Jesus was just as present there as he was in his post-resurrection body, only now by his Holy Spirit, because why wouldn't he be? Where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am also. Why wouldn't he be there? When you sit at a communion meal or a covenant meal, which is what communion is, and you are making covenant with the covenant, which is who Jesus is, why wouldn't he be there? It's at the table of the Lord that prophecy should be breaking out, that tongues and interpretation should be happening, that people should be set free and healing should be occurring. Because this is what happens when Jesus walks into a room. 
Jesus didn't go anywhere where people weren't set free. Jesus didn't go anywhere where people weren't healed. Jesus didn't go anywhere where people didn't get what they needed and had the faith to receive it. And I wanna be very clear here. I do not believe that when you take communion that the blood and the, that the juice and the wafer all of a sudden turn into blood and skin, that would be disgusting. That's not what I'm saying. But I do know this, that when you link your faith with your obedience, something supernatural pops off and things change. Paul goes on later in his letters to say to Christians, he's writing to Christians, and he says, you're left weak and hurting and dead because you don't understand the power of the table of the Lord. You don't understand what you're doing and you're not getting the effects of it because you don't get it. There is power in the blood of Jesus to change everything. We so appreciate you spending time with us. If you'd like to invest into what God is doing through City Church California, you can go to our website, citychurchca.com and click give. Thanks again, and we hope to see you at one of our campuses this Sunday.